If you have your Bibles today, uh, we're going to go to John chapter 3. And I have a challenge for us today, a, a massive challenge for me and for you, is how do you get a fresh perspective and a fresh revelation on a passage that's extremely familiar? That's the challenge that I have for us today. We're going to go to the most famous passage in the entire Bible, and I believe that if we can fight off our greatest enemy, which is not the devil, I don't believe the devil is our greatest enemy, I believe familiarity is our greatest enemy. I think if we can fight off familiarity, we might get something fresh in the familiar, because the profound is always found in the simplicity, but the simplicity is always challenged by the familiarity. And so I pray today that you would be willing to, 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 to bypass what your brain does. Your brain, your brain does this. Your brain loves to put things in categories. Your brain says, the moment you read something, your brain says, oh, we already know that. But I want to challenge today that there's a difference between head knowledge and experience. Can you say amen? And so when we read this today, I want you to continuously challenge yourself throughout this message to say, wait, I don't want to just go to default mode and thinking because I've heard this that I know this. Are you tracking with me? It's a challenge. It's a massive challenge. It's a challenge for me as a preacher. It's a challenge for all of us today. But I do believe that there's, there's some stuff here that I think is going to wreck us in a good way. Can you say amen? John 3.16, the most famous Bible verse in the world says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But I don't want to stop there today. I want to, I want to read a little bit deeper into what Jesus is saying here. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Verse 18. I'm reading this like I'm hooked on phonics. Remember hooked on phonics? I want to read it very slowly. Some of y'all are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Verse 18. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than they love the light, for their actions were evil. Verse 20, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants, can you say amen? Extremely challenging to find something fresh in the familiar, but we're going to do our best here, and I, we're going to go on a journey here. This is one of, the, this is one of those like crock-pot messages. It's going to be very slow, but I think it's going to be very powerful if we track with it. So... How do you do that? First of all, you have to always start with the original context. The original context of this, 
passage we just read is a conversation that Jesus was having with a man named Nicodemus. And the Bible tells us that this man named Nicodemus was one of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and he was part of the denomination that we call the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were people that would break down the law of God. They would break down the Torah, and they were extremely respected in their society because they had the knowledge of the Word of God. And so people looked to them to point them to God. And so he comes to Jesus, but the Bible gives you a very interesting uh, insight. It says he came to Jesus at night, which you got to pay attention to those little details in the Bible because he's trying to tell you something, that he didn't come to Jesus during the day, perhaps because he didn't want to be seen with Jesus as a respected religious leader. Why is he coming to this Galilean preacher who had no status in society? But he comes and he asks Jesus a very profound question. He says, actually, more of a statement. He said, teacher, you must be from God because it's impossible to do what you're doing without God's approval and God's blessing. And what's interesting is if you study Jesus enough, you know that Jesus never just goes with the flow. Like he says that to Jesus. It sounds like a compliment, right? And you would expect Jesus to do what normal people would do and would say, oh, thank you so much. That is really nice that you said that about me. But Jesus says, like, okay, you can go read it, John 3. Uh, he, he says to Jesus, you must be from God. And Jesus goes, well, you must be born again. Right? It makes no sense. It's like, hey, listen, I'm giving you a compliment, and you're telling me I must be born again. But you have to understand that Jesus always knows that what you're saying is one thing, but what you're actually trying to say is something else. Like, I don't know if we've been in this thing long enough, but we know that God is not into fluff. And we know that God is not into false praises. God says that I, I, don't, I don't look at the outward appearance. I go straight to the heart. Maybe Jesus knew what his heart was really trying to say. Like sometimes, I don't know if you ever pray, but you're praying words, but your heart is praying something else. I don't know if you ever find yourself in church singing worship songs, but your heart is not singing along. Anybody going to talk to me today? So Jesus cuts right through the chase and says, I know why you're here. There's a longing inside of you for actually more than just religion. You know it. You had the head knowledge of the Bible, but you're coming to me at night because you don't want to be seen with me, but there's something in you that's drawing you to me. So I need to tell you the secret is, it's not your religion. You must be born again. And he says to him, how can I be born again? I'm a grown man. How do I go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus says to him, well, I'm talking about being born of the Spirit. He says, whatever is born of the flesh is the flesh, but what is born of the Spirit is, is the Spirit. And Jesus says, if, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you hear the wind, you can tell it's windy, but you never see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. And he says, those are born of the Spirit, would be able to tell that this is from spirit and this is not from man. Now we really jacked him up. <laughs> and he's like, I don't get it. Jesus is like, 
How is it that you are the religious leader of your society and you don't get what I'm trying to tell you and I haven't told you anything deep yet? If I, can, if I can't talk to you about these things, how can I talk to you about the deep spiritual things that I have in mind? And this is where it leads to this statement. For God so loved the world. Now, why is this important? We're going somewhere here. You have to understand that by this time, the Jewish people were under the Roman Empire. They were basically slaves, and they were really believing that God would send a Messiah, a Savior, to rescue them. But they believed that their Savior would rescue them from Rome and, and, and set them free to be their own people. But here, we find them more concerned with self-preservation that they're actually concerned with God's will for the world. Why do I say this? Because by this time when Jesus comes on the scene, they're trying to preserve their culture from being inundated by the culture of the Roman Empire. They don't want to be infiltrated, and they don't want to be associated with people who doesn't associate with who they are. And so they're kind of like in this place, but they try to keep themselves insulated and isolated so they don't get inundated by a different culture and perspective of life. This is a little deep for 9 o'clock in the morning, but track, track with me. When Jesus says to him, which by the way, this conversation was a one-on-one -on -one conversation, the greatest verse in the entire universe was given to one man who happened to be religious. It blows my mind. It's how much Jesus cares for people. But here's the thing. When he says, for God so loved the world, that's foreign to a Jewish person who is only thinking about self-preservation at this time. Like, what about us? What do you mean the world? Which tells you, if you know the Bible, and they know the Bible, that they lost track of what God had in mind for them all along. Because the whole thing started when God called a man named Abram and he said, hey, Abram, I'm going to pull you out of where you are and I'm going to take you to this promised land and, and I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to all the nations. But somewhere down the line, it was, became about self-preservation. It, it, it wasn't any longer about reaching the world. It was about reaching just us. How are we going to be called to the world if all we're thinking about is self-preservation? This is why Jesus said, I came for my own, and my own didn't even recognize me. Because my own was just concerned with themselves. So in other words, he is living among their own people who've been wanting a Messiah, but because they had their own concept of the Messiah, they missed the Messiah. Because they were so caught up on self-preservation. I want to let you know today that there is a version of Christianity who is only concerned with self-preservation, not concerned with reaching the world. And I get it. And I understand it. Because, because it's scary out there. I get it. Things are changing all the time. I get it how easy it is to just be like, hey, let me just take care of my family and my own. I get it. I get the human instinct to say, forget that. We're just going to 
we're just going to take care of us and we good. But the problem is, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, Jesus says, I came to reach the world. I didn't come for self-preservation. Matter of fact, if he had come for self-preservation, this thing should have died way back then. So my friends, hear me. By the time Jesus comes to earth, here's what happens to the Jewish people. They were so consumed with self-preservation, rightly so, because they were afraid. They were slaves, and people would be bullying them that it became what has become today. There's nothing new under the sun. It has become this us versus them mindset. When you're consumed with self-preservation, anything that looks like a threat to you and your family becomes a them or they. This is why he's like, I don't understand. Of course you don't understand because your worldview is all about self-preservation. How can you understand that this was never the goal from the beginning? It's really hard to reach people that you believe are against you. Very hard. Think about this, right? We know this passage intellectually. God loves the world. But do we know it experientially? Better yet, do we know it incarnationally? Why do I say incarnationally? Because we're living today on Holy Week where God didn't say from, earth, from heaven, he didn't go, hey guys, love you. Hope it goes well. If you're struggling, reach out. Don't forget to hashtag bless. But he knew that wasn't going to cut it. He knew that wasn't going to be enough. He knew that he had to put on flesh and blood and bones. He knew that he had to humiliate himself and humble himself and become another human being to walk the earth in the middle of the mess to be able to say, hey, you actually have a God who cares incarnationally. You have a God who has a hand. You have a God who has eyes. You have a God who can speak. You have a God who, can, who has legs to go. You have a God who is not enough. It is not okay with just telling you he loves you. You have a God who wants to demonstrate that he loves you because love is not just something that you say. Love is something that you do. God was not satisfied with just saying he loves us. He, was, he wanted to demonstrate it. Wanted to show it. Because we all have been there. When someone tells they love you, but when they demonstrate it, it's a different ball game. And what's crazy to me is, he says he loves the world. But even more crazy, when you study the meaning of the word world, Greek root word is cosmos. But when you begin to break down what it actually means, it will jack you up in a good way. Here's what Jesus was saying when he says the world. Look, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, for God so loved the world immersed in sin. Worse yet, for God so loved all that stands in opposition to God. 
Worst, for God so loved the ungodly multitude. Even worse, for God so loved the hostile, all those who are hostile to the cause of Christ. That's whom God loves. This is what he means. This is what I'm saying. We can take a familiar passage and gloss over it. And I really see the significance of what God was actually saying. That's whom God loves. The world immersed in sin. All that stands in opposition to God. The ungodly multitude, hostile to him. He says, that's whom I love. But I don't just love him verbally. I'm going to love him sacrificially. That's whom God loves. By the way, the word love there, so you get the word agape. And agape means unconditional love. Is this what we think of when we think about for God so loved the world? For God so loved the ungodly that he, that he says, I'm going to love you with unconditional love. Self-preservation has conditions. I'll love you if you. I love you when you. If I'm going to love you, you're going to have to. Those are conditions. Here he says, no, I love unconditionally. And I want to prove it by going to the cross. Not just saying I love you, I want to prove to you that I love the world. Now, again, let's not quickly brush over this today. Imagine if you can, if your brain would allow you. Fight with your brain for a little bit. Imagine this. Imagine you didn't have a church background. Imagine you never went to church before. Imagine you hearing this for the first time ever. What would that do to you? Imagine this for, for, for a second. Imagine you've never felt love before. And you heard that God loves you unconditionally. Imagine you didn't even feel worthy of God's love. And you hear God says, I love you unconditionally. Imagine this. Imagine you felt ashamed and guilt about things you've done that you're not proud of in your life. And God says, I love you unconditionally. Imagine you came from a background where no one uses the word love ever. And you hear God says, but I love you unconditionally. Imagine you were told your whole life you are a terrible person or even being called a terrible sinner, worthy of God's wrath, but you hear God says, but I love you unconditionally. Imagine you grew up in an environment where you felt like you had to earn people's love, but here you hear God say, but I love you with an unconditional love. What would that do to a human psyche? What would that do to our minds and our hearts? What's crazy, it says, I love unconditionally for Whoever. The word whoever in Greek is very interesting. It's, it means anyone. Anyone. 
And the word believe is powerful. It says if you believe. Here's what the word believe means. It's much more than an intellectual awareness. It says believe means to trust in, to rely on, to cling to. Imagine, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever trusts, relies, and clings to him will have life, and life eternal. But I think we can go a little bit deeper. Imagine if every single human being personalized this verse. Imagine if we read it this way. Right? Imagine if we read it like this. For God so loved me that he gave his only son for me. That if I believe, trust, rely, cling to him and trust him as my savior, I won't perish, but I will have eternal life. What would that do to every human being? Imagine the world woke up to this every day. Imagine that is your mission statement every day. You wake up and you say, for God so loved me. Imagine we also went down to verse 17 and we read it this way. For God did not send his son to judge me or condemn me, but that I might be saved through him. Imagine that. This is what I think about. It was a song that John Lennon imagined there's no heaven. Well, I imagine a world where heaven comes to earth. Now, of course, I can see our brains going, yeah, what about, what about verses 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 that says that, 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 that there is judgment and, and there is condemnation? Well, well, if you read 18 without 16 and 17, you miss the context. And a lot of times when I hear people share the gospel, I, I think they miss the context of the gospel. It's good news. Why is it good news? Because yes, 18 to 21 is bad news. But if you read it in the right context, then you realize the bad news is not the world. Did you read it right? If you read it right, we are the bad news. <laughs> like, you ever heard people say, I got good news and bad news? I don't know how you are. Some of y'all are like, give me the good news first. Some of y'all are like, give me the bad news first. I don't know. How are you? I don't know. T tell your neighbor. I'm, I'm the bad guy first. Give me the bad. Give me the new. I don't know. But here, my friends, it's both. There's no good news if you don't realize that you are the bad news. <laughs> it's not the big bad world that's the bad news. You are the bad news. He says you are already, you stood already condemned without Jesus. So what would be the point of you telling the world they're condemned when you are part of that condemnation? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good. good news and bad news. Jesus is the good news. I'm the bad news. But if I mean Jesus, Jesus turns my bad news into good news. Yeah. So there's no need to keep reminding people 
of how condemned they are because people who are paying attention to themselves already know. <laughs> They're funny. I feel like some preachers have the need to gather people and remind them of who they used to be. I don't know about you. I don't need to be reminded. I live with me. <laughs> it's not a day that I don't check in. I need to convince myself that there's good news. I don't need to convince myself that I have bad news. So when we say we're called to the world, we're called to tell people there's good news even though you're the bad news. Or better yet, we are the bad news. All of us. But God so dearly loves people. Now I want to get a little bit more personal. Because for God so loved the world, sounds so broad. But let's, let's bring it a little bit closer to home. How about this one? For God so loved your ex. Him? Yeah. Her? Yeah. Because if you're bad news, they're bad news too. You can't get to choose their bad news and your good news. How about this one? For God so loved your boss. Him? Her? How about this one? For God so loved that hater on social media. I heard a great meme the other day. Someone said, Lord, deliver me from all my haters. And the Lord responded, Ain't no one thinking about you. <laughs> you with your three followers, your uncle and your cousin. How about this one? For God so love telemarketers. I heard a great story the other day of a person who was so convicted by God's love that he said, Telemarkers start calling. I start to have conversations with them. I start asking them, how was your day? How many people have hung up on you today? How many people have harassed you today? Because you start to realize, if God loves me, he must love that telemarketer. What if I begin to talk to the telemarketers? And he said, telemarketers begin to weep over the phone and said, no one ever asked me, how was my day? He says, I begin to pray with telemarketers. He says, I don't buy anything, but I give them the love of Jesus. How about this one? For God so loved that person that works for Planned Parenthood. For God so loved President Biden. For God so loved your Republican friend. For God so loved your Democratic friend. How about this one? For God so loved that homeless guy down the street that I see when I drive up the church, but I don't want to look him in the eye. For God so loved Muslims. For God so loved atheists. For God so loved gays. For God so loved straight people, white people, black, Asian, 
religious, non-religious. He didn't put any conditions to it. We did. We did out of fear of self-preservation. We're all guilty of it. Following Jesus, real following Jesus, not going to church, is extremely uncomfortable. Because Jesus will challenge everything that you believe in. I know Jesus, for me, he exposes my selfishness. He exposes my prejudice. He exposes my pride. I have personal agendas that Jesus will expose if I'm being honest. And sometimes I wonder this, if we have the same agenda as Jesus does, do we care about the things that Jesus cares about or have we created our own agenda and asked Jesus to bless it? Have we become like the Pharisees who were so consumed with self-preservation that they wanted to withdraw from the world, not engage the world? Because I hear this stuff. I've heard people say, you know, that church, that's just for like new people who, you know, are still kind of getting to know. What I need is I need something a little bit more deeper that would hide me into a fake understanding of holiness so I don't have to engage anybody who doesn't look like me or talk like me or act like me so I can pretend I am more holy than you are. I'm not of the world like you are. And I find it that the more judgmental we are, the more condemning we are, the more we're hiding something. So let's create more churches who are into self-preservation, who doesn't engage the world because the world is bad. But Jesus loves the world. Let's create more churches who are so deep theologically that they have no room for anyone who doesn't look like them or talk like them or act like them or believe like them. There's no room for baptisms. There's no room for new people. There's no room to make the kingdom of God richer and hell poorer because we don't have room to, to, to reach the world. We're just self-preserving ourselves from the world. And we call that spiritual maturity. And of course, you, would, you have to ask the question, yeah, but didn't Jesus say, be in the world, but not of the world. So what about that, Pastor? Yeah, my question is, what did Jesus actually say? Because a lot of times I hear people put words in Jesus' mouth. But what did Jesus actually say about being in the world, but not of the world? I think it's important to ask that question and ask Jesus to answer that question. What did he actually say about being in the world, but not of the world? Like, we have to look at it, right? Because... It's really hard to reach a hostile world if we don't have Jesus' heart. So Palm Sunday is today. So if you go back in history, Jesus had this prayer. It's a long prayer. You've got to go home and read the whole thing to get Jesus' heart. Don't get social media's heart. Don't get that religious guy's heart. Get Jesus' heart. Go home and read John chapter 17, the last prayer that he prayed before he went to the cross. Here's part of it, because I can't read the whole thing. But here's what he says about being in the world, but not of the world. Here's what Jesus said. He said, look, he's praying to God the Father. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. But to keep them safe from the evil one. 
If he's saying, hey, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, keep them safe. He's saying they're going to be in the thick of it, not self-preserving. They're going to be in the middle of the mess. And that's where the enemy comes into play. The enemy doesn't have to bother you if you're self-preserving. He says, they do not belong to this world any more than I do. But guess what? I came into it. Make them holy by your truth. Make them set apart by your truth. That's how they can go into the world. If you can sanctify their hearts, then they can be anywhere and be who we call them to be. Watch this. Teach them your word. Like you're going to be in the middle of it. There's going to be a lot of worldly things, but if they have your word sanctified, set apart in them, then they'll be distinct in the middle of it, which is truth. Not your truth, but God's truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. I'm not asking them to self-preserve. I'm asking them to plunge into the world with the truth. A few years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but we used to have this bracelet that was, became famous called WWJD. Remember that? Everybody and their mama was wearing them. Oprah had it, Tiger Woods had it, NBA players had it, atheists had it. I mean, it was a trend. What would Jesus do? I think we need to start asking that question all over again. Not, what would that preacher on YouTube do? Not, what would the guy who just wants to self-preserve do? But what would Jesus do? Because these are Jesus' words. And if you break down what he's saying here, he's saying be rooted in truth. Be rooted in God's truth, not your truth, not the world's truth. Be rooted in God's truth. If you're rooted in truth, then it's easy to discern a lie. But when you're not rooted in truth, anything can look good and truthful. He says be holy, set apart. Set apart does not mean Away from everybody. It's in the middle of it. How are you going to know you're holy if you're not around unholiness? He told those Pharisees, he says, you guys just care about each other and you think you're holy because you're around each other. It's like bouncing ideas off of people who already agree with you. He said... Be like Jesus, embody the good news. In of it, in the thick of it. What would Jesus do? This is so hard, it's so challenging. It's so much easier to self-preserve, I know that. You know how much easier it will be to have a church who doesn't care about reaching new people? That's easy, that takes no Strength, it takes no creativity, it takes no ingenuity, it takes no innovation. It just takes, you know what it takes? Literally just opening the door on Sundays. How easy that is. It's my nightmare to be in a church where I know everybody and everybody knows everybody. We might as well call it a bar. I've had nightmares about that. 
Because that's not reaching the world. That's self-preserving. So how do we do this? Practically speaking, Jesus gave his disciples a pep talk. First time he sent them out on their own. He said, I'm sending you out. Here's how you're going to do it. And here's how we need to do it. Matthew 16. He said, look, look, I'm sending you out a sheep among wolves. If you were self-preserving, you would say, stay here. And I'm sending you out. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. How's that for a pep talk? Say, <laughs> so I'm going to send you out. You're like sheep. There's going to be a lot of wolves out there. But here's how you're going to do it. You're going to be really, really shrewd. Which, by the way, if you haven't done a study on the word shrewd, usually that's used for the enemy. We say that person's a snake. I don't trust that person. Jesus is like, I want you to be like a snake. <laughs> like, wait, what? Yeah, he's saying, I'm sending you out, and you're going to be in the thick of it. There's going to be a lot of things thrown your way. You've got to be very very smart. you got to be weak and smart <laughs> to follow me. Because another word for shrewd here is the word wise. It says be wise as a snake, but harmless as a dove. Hey, two really weird animals that Jesus used here. Right? Like, I almost wish, like, I wish there was another verse that would say, okay, what does that look like to be like both, Jesus, snake and a dove? Because <laughs> there are times you got to be like a snake, but at the same time you got to be like a dove. And a dove is a very peaceful animal. It's actually, it represents the Holy Spirit. When Jesus got baptized, a dove came to represent the Holy Spirit over him. So he's saying, I want you to be really shrewd like a snake, but I want you to be really harmless like a dove. What would Jesus do? I don't know. Am I a snake right now? Am I a dove right now? What do I need to do? See how much easier it is to me to just be like, no. Forget that. I'm just going to live over here in my little eco-chamber. So we've done. We've created eco-chambers to find like-minded people so we can all have our little eco-chambers of how right we are. And everybody who doesn't fit that eco-chamber must be wrong. But how do I navigate through the world? I navigate through the world by being wise and harmless. I translate it this way. He says, hey, I'm sending y'all sheep among wolves, so don't get tangled up with the affairs of the world. You got to be smart. But don't be a jerk. That's how I translate this. It'll be really smart about why you're living, but also don't be a jerk about it. Because, because here's the thing. We have blurred the lines between the two. There are moments we need to be doves, we'll be in snakes. And some of us need to be snakes, we'll be in doves. This is why discernment is the name of the game. It's not one size fits all. Love it. Listen, think about this. Because I want to make it clear, because I can tell the religious wheel turning. Loving someone does not mean you co-sign their sinful lifestyle. This is where, no, 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 what are you doing? Go back. This is where this comes into play. Be smart about this. Be wise about this. But can we be honest? Here's why self-preservation is so much easier. 
It's so much easier. Here's why. Because there's so much about today's culture that we don't like. And it's easy to make an excuse not to love people. And, and, and use Bible verses to excuse ourselves from doing what Jesus had to do. For every argument, there's a Bible verse for it. Trust me. I study the Bible. So that's easy to do, my friends. Self-preservation comes naturally to us. It's the survival of the theorists. It's evolution. That's easy. But Jesus is saying, no, I, that's not the goal here. The goal here is to reach the world. So I have to fight like a snake and be harmless like a dove. But it doesn't mean I'm co-signing people's lifestyles that doesn't align itself with the truth of God. That's why I need to be rooted in God's truth so I can call a lie when it's a lie and call it what it is and not get sucked into it. Because Jesus said he came with grace and truth. If you take one from the other, you're going to get an imbalanced understanding of Christianity. So I leave you with the charge that Paul gave Timothy, which, by the way, Timothy lived in a Gentile world. Nicodemus lives in a Jewish world. Timothy lives in a Gentile world where everything was everything. So here's what Paul says to Timothy, which I believe we live in a Gentile world where everything is everything. He says, here's what you got to do. You should keep a clear mind. That's where, you, where the wisdom comes into play. The snake comes into play. In every situation, don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord because when you stand up for truth, sometimes you get crucified. Here's the other thing that people don't understand about Jesus. He didn't get crucified because he was Mr. Nice Guy. He was crucified because he disrupted the system. And they hated him for it. By the way, who crucified him? Religious people and political people. Wow, that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> Work at telling others the good news. For God so loved the world. Tell them. And fully carry out the ministry God has given you. You have an assignment. That's what it comes down to. We can go and hide and call the world a big bad wolf. Or we can point the world to a big bad God who loves big bad people, who is into saving and rescuing people. I was thinking about this the other day as I wrap up. Some of the biggest companies in the world never leave us alone with their commercials. Some of the biggest companies in the world have the most commercials. Like, who needs another Geico commercial? Who needs another Coca-Cola commercial? Like, your mind's made up. Either you like Coke or you like Pepsi. And if you like the good news, you like Pepsi. Now we're going to get a whole theological battle over Coke or Pepsi. Pastor said he likes Pepsi. I'm offended. You should be. You have terrible taste buds. 
But I was thinking about this. Why do they keep inundating us with their commercials? Because they know I want to stay in the forefront of your mind and we want to gain new customers. That's why we keep pushing what we believe in. And I wonder if us believers believe in the gospel the same way these companies believe in their products. What if we keep inundating the world with good news, inundate the world with good news, inundate the world with Jesus news, with the gospel news, with salvation news, with healing news, with power news, with salvation news, with baptism news. How about we inundate the world with for God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him and I am one of those and you are one of those and we thank Jesus that he's good and he's awesome and he saves and he rescues and he heals and he restores he doesn't give up on me he doesn't give up on you he doesn't give up on your neighbor he doesn't give up on your worker he doesn't give up on your boss he's coming after everyone but he loves my God Oh, what would happen to our churches if we stopped self-preserving and we got in the game of rescuing? Because salvation is a picture of a rescue mission. That was a, he came on a rescue mission. And now he's like, I've given you a lifeboat. What are you going to do with it? If you see people drowning, do you just say, I need to just get away from here? Or do you turn your boat around and say, I need to go get one more person who needs a lifeboat? That's the good news. Can we pray to embody this good news? And when it gets hard, we want to self-preserve. Ask for more strength. Ask for more power. Just this morning, I go to pray to Jesus, and I say, Jesus, help me get up there again. There's a lot going on. I'm not going to tell you what's going on, but I got a lot going on. But I say, Jesus, help me get up there again. If I have the choice between getting up there again and self-preserve, I want to die for the cause of Jesus Christ. Come on, let's pray together. Father, we pray that we are your people, redeemed by the blood of your son, Jesus. And we're here to make room for you to do whatever you have to do, whatever you want to do. Lord, break down these things that we have put in front of people. We've put so much barriers and so much things and, and we've, we've been so caught up with ourselves that we lost the heart. The mission is to reach the world. For God so loved the world. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you give us a fresh heart for the gospel, fresh love for people, fresh desire to get into the game, to embrace the mess so we can see more messages. Embrace the test so we can see more testimonies. I, I, I pray that we are not in a rush to leave the presence of God. 
I, I pray that we can, can say, Lord, for real, I'm making room for you to do whatever you want to do. So we're going to do the song again, but it's a, it's a song to say, Lord, we're coming to you. And, and if you want to get out of your seat and come to the, sometimes you need to take a step towards the Lord. That's what an altar is. It's just saying, I'm not going to stay where I am. I'm going to take a step towards your will and your purpose. And so as we sing the song, you're welcome to come. Or you're welcome to sit in your seat and pray, but don't leave in a rush until you get that mission. I'm not leaving here to go self-preserve. I'm leaving here to enter the mission that God has me. So let's, let's worship some more and the altar's open. We hope this talk has encouraged and challenged you. If it was helpful, share with a friend. For more info, visit newlifesouthcoast.com. Until next time, have a blessed week.